you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from the ChrisVossShow.com. The ChrisVossShow.com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. We certainly appreciate you tuning in. Have I ever told you that? Wait, every show? Well, no, we really do. Like from the bottom of my heart, the depths of my soul, from the inner working sanctums of my brain, and what other parts of me can I reference? We appreciate you tuning in. But most of you, there's, there's a couple of guys there in the back we're really not sure about, but the jury's out on them. Anyway, guys, thanks for being here. Go to youtube.com for chess Chris Voss. Hit the bell notification button. It's that button that makes you feel so special when you hit it. it makes you feel like you belong to something much bigger than anything, really. And the beautiful part is when you hit that button, you're never judged by the Chris Voss show. So it's very different than your family. So there you go. Plus, we always love it. If you've seen your family, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, guys, go to goodreads.com for just Chris Voss and uh, see everything we're reading and reviewing over there. All the groups on the Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, the TikTok, and whatever the hell new things the kids are playing with these days. Go see us over there. So we're excited to announce my new book is coming out. It's called Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's going to be coming out on October 5th, 2021. And I'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book. It's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories, lessons, my life, and experiences in leadership and character. I give you some of the secrets from my CEO entrepreneur toolbox that I use to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33, 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. So you can pre-order the book right now wherever fine books are sold, but the best thing to do on getting a pre-order deal is to go to beaconsofleadership.com. That's beaconsofleadership.com. On there, you can find several packages you can take advantage of in ordering the book. And for the same price of what you can get it from someplace else like Amazon, you can get all sorts of extra goodies that we've taken and given away. Uh, Different collectors, limited edition, custom-made numbered book plates that are going to be autographed by me. There's all sorts of other goodies that you can get when you buy the book from beaconsofleadership.com. So be sure to go there, check it out, or order the book where refined books are sold. Anyway, guys, we have a brilliant author on the show. He's written a book uh, that just came out October 12th, 2021, called Desperate, an Epic Battle for Clean Water and Justice in Appalachia. His name is Chris Marr, and he's going to be talking to us today about his amazing new book. He's been a staff reporter for the Wall Street Journal since 2005, writing about environmental issues, coal mining, labor, regional economics, and other topics. He's reported on the Flint water crisis, PFAS, yes, PFAS, drinking water contamination, and Massey's Energy Upper Big Branch Mine Disaster. More recently, he wrote about the pandemic's effort, effect on families coping with remote learning. He's covered the trials of Jerry Sandusky, Bill Cosby, and Don Blankenship, and has also written several features for the journal's front page, A-Head Column, on topics ranging from extreme pogo athletes to the coldest town in the U.S. He lives in Pittsburgh with his two children. Welcome to the show, Chris. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Good, um, good, good. Really, 
Yeah, appreciate your interest in the story and the book and love your show. So it's great to talk to you. There you go. It's wonderful to have you on. And uh, I guess my actually my first question should be, are you a, a Pittsburgh Steelers fan? I I am. I grew up in New Jersey, so I grew up in the <laughs> generations of New York Giants fans, but I had no choice once I came here to yeah. turn to the black and gold. Yeah. Well, as long as you didn't say the Jets. Anyway, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I love the Jets. Wait, are they still a team? Anyway, guys, that was really rude of me. We just lost the Jets crowd. Damn it. So, Chris, what motivated you to write this book? Oh, give us your plugs first, actually. You oh. just give us both at the same time. Oh, you can find me on Twitter at it's Chris underscore Mar, which is, and it's Chris with a K, it's K-R-I-S underscore M-A-H-E-R. And so you can find me, my website is chrismarauthor.com. And then um, trying to think where else you can find me, Instagram, chrismar underscore official, which is the official handle for that. So yeah, yeah. Thanks again for having me on. And so this, this story is just to give an overview. It's about these four communities in Southern West Virginia and Mingo County that had this undrinkable well water for years and years. This The water was really awful. It was black and gray. It was brown. It smelled like diesel fuel or um, mm, The chemicals. diesel fuel. Yeah, mm. not something you want to have in your glass in the kitchen <laughs> or do your dishes or your clothes or take it. They were really struggling for years. They were unable to get the county and the state to help them get a municipal water line. The nearest industrial site was this coal processing facility owned by Massey Energy and its subsidiary, which is its name was Raw Sales and Processing. And the company had denied that it affected the wells at all. So finally, the people turned to an environmental lawyer. His name is Kevin Thompson. And that was in 2004. And that kind of got the whole story started. He was wow. representing the people for seven years. Mm -hmm. Mingo uh, County, West Virginia. Yeah. So Mingo County, it's uh, it's in the very southern part of, the, of West Virginia, right along the border with Kentucky. And the communities that I write about are in this, it's a really beautiful area. It's these green hills, winding roads, it's basically hills everywhere. It's just, there's no flat land. And I wrote about these four old coal mining communities. Two of them are in, in these hollows along creeks and they were, they sprang up in the early 20th century to house coal miners. And there's still these really small remote communities. So yeah, Mingo County, it's about 90 miles, an hour and a half south of Charleston. And I love driving down there. And I always feel like I'm heading to someplace that's just disconnected from civilization in a way. It's, it's an entirely other place down there. It's really sad. My my mother is a coal miner's daughter from West Virginia. I went there as a child, I think when I was four or five, beautiful place. And uh, the Appalachians have just Really, the people there have just really taken a hit with their lives, jobs, all that sort of stuff. Now, it was Donald Blankenship, was he part of this whole? Yeah, so he is a major figure in the book and in this story because he was the CEO of Massey Energy. And to get back to your first question, the reason mm -hmm. I wanted how I got into this story was I was reporting in 2010 for the Wall Street Journal in Pittsburgh and in, in West Virginia, Massey Energy's upper big branch mine exploded in April of 2010. So I went down there immediately, was there for a few days during the vigil to see if miners were going to be surviving. They had these mine rescue teams going underground for days. And that I had covered Massey a bit and coal mining a bit, but that really drew me into the state and coal mining even more because after four days, they determined that 29 miners had been killed. So that was mm -hmm. the worst coal mining disaster in the U.S. in four decades, 40 years. So it, was, it shook the entire state of West Virginia, especially the southern half. I don't know if you have family from there, but it really sent shockwaves through the whole state. This was 
touching 300 miners worked at that mine. And mm-hmm. so the loss of 29 just reverberated through a lot of communities. And I ended up covering the civil investigation, the criminal investigations that followed for months and actually years. It, right away, and so that happened in April. In May, I went down and I had just heard about this lawsuit. Someone mentioned on a, you know, one of those calls when you're reporting at the end of the call, he says, oh, you might want to just give this lawyer a call. It's an interesting thing to check out this lawsuit. So I went down to Williamson, West Virginia, Williamson in Mingo County, which is again, right on the border with Kentucky. It's this old fading coal town, seen much better days. And I met the lawyer, Kevin Thompson, who had sued Massey on behalf of these four communities and about 700 people who had this horrible water in their homes. And so Kevin Thompson, he was working out of this old hotel, the Mountaineer. And it's a hotel that was built in 1925. When he started working there in about 2002 to four, it was just this old relic. There was no carpeting, no heat. A lawyer in town bought it and he was trying to rehabilitate it and everything. But so when I went and met Kevin Thompson, he's in this wood paneled office. It was almost like a startup company, but with a Mingo County flavor. It was like Mm -hmm. uh, mind maps on the walls and they had a dark side of the moon posters, bluegrass playing and music in the corner. And, and I just got this sense, this visceral sense that, that this was this incredible story. Cause you have this lawyer, he's not like out of a white shoe law firm or he's this guy kicking back in his chair with a, like a moth t-shirt. Cause he's from Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And at one point he pointed out the window of the office to this light on a hill. And he said, that's Don Blankenship's house up there. That was like this corporate retreat that Blankenship had built on the top of a hill that kind of looked down had a panoramic view. So it's almost like this coal baron looking down on everybody. And just that juxtaposition of this lawyer, what he was going through and this coal CEO who lived in the communities, even though he was running this billion dollar coal company, he's on the board of the US Chamber of Commerce. And it's a big deal in the coal industry, the face of the coal industry in some ways. And then when I found out what the people had gone through to just, it was too good of a story to pass up, just too compelling of a story, really. So before the lawyer got involved, how, how many, how long were these people drinking this water? How long did they end up drinking this water? Are they still drinking this water where it's this nasty stuff? Yeah. Profile more in the book. The, they're the Browns, Ernie and Carmelita Brown. They noticed their water go bad in the early 1980s. They weren't sure the exact date by the time I came around and was reporting. But so this is in the early 80s. And what happened was Carmelita went to take a bath one night. And she turned on the water and her bathtub just filled up with this gray water It had these particles in it. She called her husband into the bathroom. They just waited there to see if the water would run clear and it didn't. And the thing was the water would get better and then it get worse. But over time it was really deteriorating. The water was clearly degrading in this area. And so that's really the start. It got worse for people in the nineties. And then again, in the early two thousands, they were really trying to get the state to help them. They wrote to Senator Byrd, who has highways and things named after him throughout the state, but he wasn't able to help. The congressman, even Joe Manchin at the time was Secretary of State. He wasn't able to help. For some reason, these people were just on their own until they got the lawyer. They even called themselves the Forgotten Communities. They had a sign on the road Jesus. Uh, that says, please help us get water, the Forgotten Communities. And meanwhile, Joe Manchin is the guy who decides whether we have infrastructure in this country. Like, yeah, in the face already. 
there might be some kind of a through line here. Consistent <laughs> 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 stupidity. Now, I know that this guy, correct me if I'm wrong, but I know this guy was intertwined with a lot of stuff, this Don Blankenship dude. Not only was he, had his head up Donald Trump's butt, if I recall rightly, and then Donald Trump was trying to help them bring coal back because you know that's something that should come back why don't we just bring back i don't know steam at one point he didn't want to bring back steam and navy ships and then i think he's the one who sued john oliver right yeah so i think what i know now so just to go back a little bit blanket ship exited the scene and after that accident that i referred to before in 2010 he was he was ousted later that year from massey energy the company was sold the board of directors had a a lot of motivation to sell the company because they were under potential criminal liability themselves. So the company disappeared after that. It was absorbed by another company. But And Don Blankenship was indicted in 2014. He he was convicted and he was sentenced to prison. He served a year in prison yeah. for violating mine safety laws, which is a misdemeanor. And that term misdemeanor is really important because since Blankenship got out of prison in 2017, I believe, he has sued and he, okay. So just to go forward a little bit, he, in 2018, he ran for Senate in the state of West Virginia, but he lost and he lost in the primary. But during that campaign, he got a lot of media attention, all the stations, CNN, Fox, everywhere. And so he was referred to as a felon sometimes. And I want to make clear that I'm saying he was convicted of misdemeanor because he ended up suing about a hundred media outlets and personalities <laughs> for $12 billion. Yeah. He loves that's doing ongoing. That's ongoing. So I, from what I understand, he's very involved in pursuing that that lawsuit right now. And he just, uh, they're moving forward in the Donald Trump one. I'm a junior. I'm, I just saw it as, uh, on the 7th of this month. They yeah. allowed it to go forward. So that's good. I Boy, I hate to see Don Jr. get sued and maybe lose the $5 his dad gave him or something. That's just... <laughs> Wow. I'll send my thoughts and prayers. But this, yeah, I remember John Oliver doing the bit on on the Blankenship guy. And he's, he's like, go ahead, sue us. And then he sued them. And then finally, I guess, when his companies filed bankruptcy. So why don't these guys in, and so you tell the story of how this unravels, but why don't these guys have a normal water system? I don't know, some countries or some countries, some counties do where you have, you have some sort of filtration uh, suburbia uh, city setup. I don't know. Yeah. So it's a really great question because there's still a lot of well water in this area and I mean, uh-huh. throughout, the country, throughout the country, there's lots of people relying on residential wells, mm. but just like, just to lay out the geography a little bit. So there's the town, the city of Williamson, which is where that hotel was and the courthouse. And there's actually a building called the coal house, which is made of 65 tons of coal, the entire mm. building. It's a cube shaped and it's where the, uh, local chamber of commerce has its offices. There's a hotel, coal house, courthouse. But so there's so the, just to lay out the map a little bit. There's Williamson, and then there's Matewan, which is a, a very historic town there. Which you you might have seen the, heard about the John Sales movie, which was about the 1920 organizing effort by the miners there, and the Matewan massacre was a shootout between uh-huh. the sheriff and the Baldwin Feltz detectives that were kicking miners out of their homes, forcing them into tents. But between Williamson and Matewan, there are these others, the communities that I wrote about. And so it's very rural. Matewan and Williamson do have municipal water. But the thing was, in the beginning, that people couldn't get connected to those water systems. Mm-hmm. Now, but the other thing that's remarkable about this whole story is that Don Blankenship himself 
lived in one of these four communities and he had a water line. He had a pipe going from Matewan to his own house. Wow. Sometime in the 1990s, he got it. And that was something that outraged the people. They, meanwhile, essentially, they're his neighbors with this contaminated water. And he had uh, water coming from Matewan himself. And I did ask him about that. And he said that it was a casual thing. He didn't remember. And he's got incredible recall for every detail. <laughs> all the calls everybody for it. <laughs> but he portrayed it that the way he told the story, he had just told workers at the company, hey, if we ever have an opportunity to get some city water, let's get it. Just because generally it's better than the well water. But but that's, that's it's like the 1% right there. It's uh, Bernie yeah. Sanders. Wow, man. That's just extraordinary. So why wasn't his company providing better water to these people? I know some people have well water and they're like, especially when I grew up, we got well. We don't need shit. Was this stuff showing up in their well water? Or was it showing up in the city, the, whatever water he was providing? Or how was this? Yeah. Uh, was this? Uh, how was this getting into their? They had to really figure that out because that was Kevin Thompson, the environmental lawyer's main job. Really, was to figure out what happened to the water. There's this mystery. The water's underground. What happened underground? The company give a little more background. So the the subsidiary coal company, Royal Sales and Processing, what they did there was process the coal, which means they cleaned it. And there's this one green building, which was incredibly complex inside, but the coal goes through there and it's got to be broken up into the right size. It's got to be run through this water. And so in the end, what you're left with is this, what's called slurry. It's this black sludge and you've got to store it somewhere. A lot of companies build these impoundments, these giant lakes where they just store it for years and years. But what Massey, it turns out what this company was doing was injecting the slurry into the abandoned mines. So in this area, Holy. coal has been mined for over a hundred years. And so all the, by the eighties, most of the mining was done, although there were some active mines still, and they would just run a pipe through the hills, stick it into a, they drill a borehole down, put the pipe in there, and then they just run it down there until it's shot out, the, the uh, black water shot out, which is Holy a violation. crap. That's an environment violation, by the way. But um, and so, Where was the EPA during this whole time? Yeah, so the, it's, that's a really great question because <laughs> the, it turns out that in the 1980s, the state regulators were really upset with the company doing this because they initially did it without a permit. Then the state said, and the company said, it's going to cost jobs. If we can't do this, we're going to have to shut down. And they copied the governor on the letter they wrote back. And it was a whole back and forth. There were a lot of violations of how the story was handled at the time. But at one point, the state said, okay, fine. You can go for six months. We'll give you a limited permit, six months. And you got to build this impoundment to store it more safely. But in the end, the company just blew past that deadline and they just kept doing it every month and they had these detailed reports. They inject 20 million gallons a month down to the hundredth of a decimal place. They record it. And, but that was all lost by the, in the early two thousands, when the people again, were trying to get the water and figure out what happened. All that injection was forgotten about. And it took Kevin Thompson digging through files. And actually there's a point where a guy that Kevin hires, his name's Jack Spadaro. He used to work for the federal agencies that regulate coal mining. And someone tipped him off and said, hey, there's some documents here you guys want to know about. They're going to throw them. So come and get them. So they went and got this series of files and it showed, and I don't want to give too much of the story away, but yeah, yeah. literally a, a billion gallons was injected into a school area. Yeah. So it was, but it took all this digging by Kevin, the lawyer, to um, wow. unearth all that. 
This is extraordinary. A lot of your reviews and a lot of people that have written about it, they're like, this reads like a novel because it's truth is stranger than fiction. But it's insane that it's for real. You know, it, when you really study like the red states, and I hate to sound like a liberal, but, but I am. I, I'm not trying to be political, but you read about some of the things that goes on, and these people really vote against their own best interests a lot of times between jobs and you, you see the corruption that goes on in red states mm. and you're just like why do you guys keep you guys you guys have like your Russian roulette point in your head and you wonder why but this is why they this is why they love low education in these states and everything else this is in the area too where the Hatfield McCoy feud still is is that true yeah so that was like another reason I wanted to tell this story is because I really was interested in how the history and the, what people had to deal with coal companies over a hundred years, like how that resonates today. People, and the Hatfield-McCoy feud did happen in this area. It's often portrayed as like these just outlaw hillbillies, this blood feud, they're illiterate. They're just going to, they're not going to go to the courts. They're going to just, you know, shoot each other. But you know, I talked to some scholars and there's also people locally who've dug through lots of court filings and all the courthouse records. And so I think it's even more interesting that it's more almost of an economic story because what was really happening in the second part of that Hatfield-McCoy feud, it's between the Devilance Hatfield, all Randall McCoy, and then, but what was really happening was the railroad was coming through in 1892. They were going to connect, you know, Ohio, Cincinnati to like Norfolk, uh, Virginia. And they chose this right along the river. I was describing the river and the road between Williamson and Maitwan. But before that railroad was completed in 1892, this the really the smart businessmen in the area, the merchants and all these guys from like Pikeville, Kentucky, even Logan, West Virginia, they were aware that land values were just going to skyrocket, and they wanted to get in on that this mm -hmm. land grab and the mineral rights, which is a whole other thing about how that's been taken away from people locally by these huge corporations. Yeah. Um, so the fight, a lot of the fight had to do with these investors in Pikeville trying to get Devilance's 5,000 acres. And so I get into that in the book and I think interesting that it's not, it's more of, I don't know, these people were more sophisticated than they're given credit for in the popular story. There was that fighting, which is over land and capital. And when the railroad came through, it just transformed this region, just industrialized it quickly, mines sprang up. Williamson, Maitwan were like boom towns. Then you have miners for the next 20 years working in really tough conditions. There, these coal mines, coal companies had these mine guards that were basically their company police that would police the people. And people got paid in scrip, which is company money. It's a currency you can only use at the company store. You got to buy your own equipment, your carbide for your lamp or whatever you need, your blasting caps. And so in 1920, there was that Mate One massacre I was talking about, 11 people killed. And then after there was, there were people living in tents all along the river. And some of those people at the time were the grandparents of the people in the Kevin Thompson lawsuit of fighting wow. over the water. So they had been fighting the coal company for a hundred years, basically from 19, oh, 85, 90 years. And so they had that in there. You talk about people and their interests politically and everything. It's such a complicated picture when you look at how do people feel about coal companies because yeah. they relied on them for jobs, but they also had been screwed over time and time again. And we want, we want, I remember seeing you when Trump first got elected. We're reading Colbeck and 
people are like, I want my coal job back. And you're like, black lung? It, it's, and it was insane. If you understand how the market works and how natural gas prices just become so much more cheaper. But yeah, I remember hearing, I don't know, years ago, I was watching something about the mineral rights being taken away from the people in West Virginia yeah. and how subversive it was. But like I said, my mother, I, I just sent her a text to see which city she grew up in, West Virginia. I think it was Charleston. My my great grand or my grandfather was a teamster uh, recruiter or boss or something local in the area. I know he hopped around. They moved around to suit a few different places, but they were for coal miners. And then somebody we had on the show year in the last year or so told me that one of the things they used to do when a coal miner died in the mine, a lot of times they couldn't recover his body or you know it wouldn't come up out of the thing. And but then they would throw you out of the housing. They throw the wife and the kids out of the housing. They'd be like, hey. Yeah. Husband died, so he can't pay the bills anymore. So you got to get out of the housing. And it was like crazy. I didn't know about the script thing with the. Yeah, a couple of things. One thing about that directly is one of the guys, one of the people on the lawsuit is a pastor from one of the communities called Rawl, R A W L. And he, there's an old like white church at the top of this hollow, and that's his church and his trailers right there. His, his grandfather had worked for the mines in the 1920s. And he was injured twice. And just like you said, like the second time he almost was killed both times, but they just, after the second time he was injured, the company let him go and he had nothing, no benefits wow. on the wife. His grandmother at the time had to just survive, find a way to survive. But one other thing I wanted to just really quickly say, you mentioned Trump and I do think I don't get into politics in the book, but I've noticed in my reporting recently that the attitudes are changing about coal. And I think people, more people are recognizing that coal is not the future of the mm -hmm. state. And I think actually part of that comes from just the fact that Trump was in office and he made those promises and he actually had some policies that were intended to help coal. But the thing, the fact is that everything he did not help, it did not slow the, the you know, loss of production or loss of jobs. So I think that kind of gives people more of a sense, okay, it's not a political thing. It's like you were saying, natural gas and yeah. it's economic. I was just reading today that there's a bunch of people that are taking up that $10,000 bounty to move to West Virginia that are like tech out and they're not working in the office. But that doesn't help these people. These people need some real help because they, correct me if I'm wrong, there's not, if, the, if you lose your coal job, there's not like a lot of other jobs in the area. Yeah, there are a lot of groups that are trying to diversify the economy. And I think mm -hmm. that is the answer because that was the, the big problem for the state and this southern half of it is that... Yeah. There was this mono economy. You only had coal and everything relied on that. So now they're trying to do some farming tourism. And I've been really encouraged when I go to Matewan recently, where you can still, you go there and it's still really historic. It hasn't changed that much. You can still see where the bullet holes are in the buildings and everything. Oh, wow. But yeah, you can, yeah, it's pretty wild. But they've been doing a lot of four-wheeler trail riding and things. And they've, so there, there's a couple of restaurants that have opened up. Yeah. Um, some stores and they're doing really well. I was just there last weekend, actually. Yeah, it's a really beautiful country. When I went there as a child, it was I was just amazed at how much green there was. I was like, holy crap, look at all these trees. And I remember the the bees, the what do they call them, the the lightning bugs. Yeah, those? yeah. The lightning bugs. Yeah, those are amazing. We capture them in the jars and, and the, the squirrels that would soar through the trees, the flying squirrels or whatever. Just beautiful country. Yeah, you would think they could make, I don't know, some hunting retreats there or some sort of something. something. But uh, yeah, it's, it's really sad. I won't ask you how the book ends since it reads like a novel and, and uh, we'll keep people in suspense for that. Anything else you want to touch out or tease on the book before we go? So 
Yeah, just thinking right now that just to give people a sense of what the people in the communities went through, it was seven years of litigation. They'd already been living with this water for years. Then the lawsuit comes and they have a lot of hope, especially in Kevin Thompson. And um, But they they had to fight for another seven years and they really went through a lot of things because there were these trial dates were set and then there'd be a delay and over and over again. And so at one point, the, the judge on the case, he's the only county judge in Mingo County. He, he ordered Kevin Thompson to bring all 700 of his clients to the courthouse on three days notice. Some of them lived on the West coast. Some lived in Kentucky and they don't have Florida, I think was a person too. They don't really have the means to just get on a jet and, you know, fly there. Mm. And the judge said, you, you brought this case in Mingo County. We're going to try it in Mingo County. If they're not here, they're going to be kicked out of the case. So that was, there's a, a bunch of dramatic moments like that. So Kevin Thompson and his staff were working for three days straight, no sleep to try to get all these people. It's not even that easy. The people who are local to get them on the phone, or you got to drive up <laughs> in the hollows and stuff. And so they had this marathon day, um, and the, the courthouse wasn't big enough for all the clients. So they had to get this field house, this big gymnasium about a mile away and shuttle people back and forth. And this went on all day. The courtroom was hot. One person passed out, had like a diabetic seizure. There were people on oxygen tanks because they're not that they have health issues. And so that was by the end of it, Thompson was just collapsed, exhausted. They did settle some of the cases, but I'd also say that there's comes a point where Kevin thinks he's he worries about the judge. There's an appearance of impropriety, mm-hmm. and the judge again. He's the only county judge. Mm-hmm. Every day he has lunch in the sports bar in Williamson with his friends and his appointees and the county government in a table in the back of the room, and they run the county. And so Kevin decides he's going to recuse the judge, get him kicked off the case, and that's a whole thing where. Living in Williamson is tough enough for an environmental lawyer. And he, at one point, Kevin has to actually flee the city because the sheriff tells him, I can't protect you anymore. Holy and, moly. Yeah. There's some dramatic moments. It, that's called the exodus in the book. <laughs> Holy crap. The corruption. I mean, this has got all the making. This is going to be a great movie. This is going to be yeah, better than that, that Brockovich movie. That was, a great, that was a great movie too. I think it's one yeah, of the great. But, but this has got, wow. I was reading the, the bio on it. I'm like, Wait, is this a novel or is this a nonfiction? <laughs> this is, it, it's really sad. These people live here. Their children probably, you know, I don't know, got poisoning from a lot of this. They were getting kidney stones to cancer, it says here. But there's a real human trauma, a human loss here that, that's uh, damaging. And you would think that in 2021 or at least the 1990s, we would advance a little bit. It's not getting better. I, we were talking in the pre-show in the green room about how there's another outbreak in some other town in Michigan about bad water. Yeah. So and I think you mentioned the infrastructure bill earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's in that bill, there's about $50 billion to address water infrastructure wow. across the country. But yeah, you mentioned that town in Michigan, uh, Benton Harbor. There's an estimated 6 million to 10 million lead pipes in the country. And I don't think people really ever, they don't really know where they're buried. Because I remember covering <laughs> Flint. At one point in Flint, they were trying to figure out where are all the lead pipes in the city. They had these paper uh, note cards that they had to flip through these decades old cards with like pencil writing to figure out where the lead was. Yeah, I think there's a recognition this infrastructure bill shows that it's not only lead too. It's there's about 10 billion for this PFAS. That's the chemical mm-hmm. used to make Teflon and everything, which they're finding in thousands of water systems around the country. 
Yeah, I don't know where I picked it up, but I was listening to something about how long PFSAS stays in people's bodies or something like that. Exactly. And it's really scary. And I can't remember where I was hearing. I must be going insane. But I collect a lot of data. And I think I was watching a video and it's playing something else. And they were talking about how long it stays in people's body, how damaging it is, and how at one point uh, the, the PFSAS, Teflon stuff, they were told not to use it, but they kept using it or something. It was like the foster grant sort of stuff that you heard about. Just the same what this country gets away with. And isn't the irony that the guy who's uh, is the linchpin for that, for the Build Back Better program is Joe Manchin from West Virginia? Like, yeah. Shoot me. <laughs> He, he does seem to be threaded through this whole story, infrastructure, and yeah. yeah. Meanwhile, I saw him on the other day on his expensive boat. I guess some people were protesting, and he had some, I don't know, half-million-dollar boat or something he's on, just like telling him to have off. And, yeah, uh, it's, called, it's called Almost Heaven. That's the name of the boat. <sighs> wow, West Virginia. He's probably the one who killed uh, John Denver. Wait, can I say that on there? Anyway, I'm just kidding. That's a bad John Denver joke. Is it too soon? My grandmother and my mom are going to hate me for that joke. <laughs> they love that song. But no, my apologies to, to John Denver fans everywhere. On the other hand, my apologies are not to Jets fans. You're one in four this. Uh, you're one in four this year, so you still not are a football team. My apologies to who's the guy? Joe Namath. Was it Joe oh, Namath? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, Joe. Anyway, enough apologies for that, Chris. It's been wonderful to talk to you today. Give us your plugs on the book so people can order it up and uh, find out more about you. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. It's uh, what's called Desperate, an Epic Battle for Clean Water and Justice in Appalachia. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, indie books, local bookstores. So, yeah. There you go. Everywhere. Yeah. And to correct me, is it Appala Appalachia or uh, Appalachia? So yeah, I've been pronouncing it wrong this whole time. <laughs> That's I think okay. I was from the area. I'm just kidding. That's a, Now I've lost that crowd, too. All right. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate it, Chris. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. There you go. And to those of you who are still left listening, uh, please go to youtube.com for just Chris Voss. Hit the bell notification button. Go to goodreads.com for just Chris Voss. And you can see all the stuff we're reading and reviewing over there, including my new book. Also go to uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, all those crazy places those crazy kids are playing. Pick up the book, October 12th, 2021, Desperate, an epic battle for clean water and justice in Appalachia. All right, I need to work on that. That's what I'll be doing after the show. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. Be good to each other, and we'll see you guys next time. So we're excited to announce my new book is coming out. It's called Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's going to be coming out on October 5th, 2021. And I'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book. It's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories, lessons, my life, and experiences in leadership and character. I give you some of the secrets from my CEO entrepreneurial toolbox that I use to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33, 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. So you can pre-order the book right now wherever fine books are sold, but the best thing to do on getting a pre-order deal is to go to beaconsofleadership.com. That's beaconsofleadership.com. On there, you can find several packages you can take advantage of in ordering the book. And for the same price of what you can get it from someplace else like Amazon, you can get all sorts of extra 
extra goodies that we've taken and given away. Uh, different collectors, limited edition, custom made numbered book plates that are going to be autographed by me. There's all sorts of other goodies that you can get when you buy the book from beaconsofleadership.com. So be sure to go there, check it out, or order the book wherever fine books are sold. 